July 14, 2013, lecture discussion number 116 on the book of Romans. And obviously we're still in or about Romans 5.12, that's where we are. And it is a dip netting Sunday, as I told the group here. Uh, so this is another one of my summertime stalling lectures, so I don't have to repeat it for the people that come. It's, um, you, I think you'll find it uh, helpful if you've missed a few. Uh, if you haven't, you'll be mad at me, but it's okay. Before I get started, uh, and we're going to be returning back to Elijah and Elisha, it'll just be in a roundabout way, 2 Kings 1 and 2 Kings 2, uh, but I have a, a, a letter from David in Nebraska, and I wanted to answer it because it kind of fit in more than he thought. Uh, dear uh, Pastor Chronister, I have two questions, both are off topic, and off topic is what we do here, so that's not a problem, David. Uh, uh, but I promised a friend I would ask. Uh, first question was Revelation 2.10. 2, uh, whom is put in prison and is the ten actual days? The ten day actual days are year, are they years or periods? Um, for example, ten periods of persecution. That's the church of Smyrna is what he's talking about. Uh, Smyrna, if I'm, uh, actually comes from the word, uh, myrrh, right, as you know. Myrrh is embalming fluid, so I have a church that is essentially called by Christ embalming fluid. So clearly they are the persecuted church. They're in the persecuted church age, most dispensationalists will tell you, and they had to deal with being killed. Uh, Polycarp, uh, as an example, was burned at the stake at age 86. If I'm going to be burned at the stake, 86 probably suits me just fine. My dad used to tell me anything over 80 was gravy, so I'll take it. But uh, that was the church uh, element then. And, and I will say to you, there is a 10 days mentioned. And what uh, Dave uh, from Nebraska, David from Nebraska is asking is, what are those 10 days or the actual 10-day periods that he didn't think they were or, or his friend doesn't? Um, and I would say to you, those of you who are interested in this, go to Daniel 1.14, where the 10 days are also mentioned. Um, and so you see this period of time of testing that is referenced in 10 days. You put the 10 days of Daniel 1.14 uh, alongside of Revelation 2.10, always go find the rest of it, right? You have a question about a period or anything, any word in the Bible, go find it where it is, elsewhere, and start adding it together. So that's what I would say, and that will solve for you very quickly uh, the uh, 10 days. And then he asked this question, which uh, Yvonne from Brazil, if you remember, also asked. Um, he said, uh, do you distinguish between Jew and Israelite? Some people are adamant that uh, Jew is a member of Judea and Israelite is a reference to the lost tribes taken from Samaria by the Assyrians. Um, I don't, I don't um, know this point. I don't think I don't. I can't read it. I'm sorry. Uh, but my friend is adamant that as Christians we are grafted in and are now Jews, subject to the law. It's been an uphill battle, and finally we just agreed to disagree. So he has a friend that says that uh, we are all now really Jews uh, because we are grafted in, um, and that's in Romans, as you're aware. question becomes, um, is there a difference between spiritual descendancy from Abraham and physical descendancy from Abraham? And yes, there is. So you have to know when you are called, uh, are you grafted in physically or grafted in physic or spiritually? Uh, paying attention to that. Also, um, so you have to define that. You also have to decide which are you talking about, as he points out, uh, Jew or Israelite, because the Jews themselves, Fruchtenbaum, Arnold Fruchtenbaum being preeminent here, 
will say that I have apostate Jews, non-believing, if not pagan Jewishness, but they're still physical descendants. I have faithful remnant, and I have messianic or Christian Jews. And there's a difference between those. So whenever you approach a, 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 a topic of, of descendancy, you have to first decide, is it physical or is it spiritual? Is it If it's a Jew, Jewish descendancy, is it apostate? Is it faithful remnant or is it messianic? Most of the mistakes made with regard to, uh, to uh, people who want to make us go back um, to the sacrificial system and the sacrificial laws um, uh, make the mistake on, based on physical descendancy. And, and so that's how they get in trouble. I hope that helps you, David. And that uh, takes care of that portion of the lecture. So we're going to return to Elisha and Elisha, 2 Kings 1 and 2. Um, but again, a couple of interesting things whack-a-mold themselves to the surface since we last had class. So I'll, I'm going to try to take those on here really fast. Really fast means an hour. Uh, and yes, whack-a-mold, it's, it's in the past tense. It's all one word. It is now a word. Why is it a word? Because I'm placing it, whack-a-mold, into the public domain, which I get to do now that I am an internet sensation, huge in Finland. Okay, not really. But I'm entering it into uh, the public domain alongside of my other past tense, uh, tense word, uh, plywooded. Also, uh, plywooded is a verb, just like whack-a-mold. As in, we done plywooded that wall with what? Plywood. So you notice it's not only a verb, but it's also a noun simultaneously. And so that makes it a really unique word. Uh, uh, a few people are aware of this. Whoops, what just happened? Oh, the microphone fell. Okay, it's Ken's fault. A few people are aware that uh, that uh, plywood is a noun and a verb, and, and plywooding obviously is the present tense of plywooded. Again, that's common knowledge amongst uh, framing carpenters, uh, and not so uh, among the so-called uh, educated elites. It's not unusual at a job site to hear, "Why looky there at, at that guy plywood? Hey, Amen. He plywood's good." He is plywooding faster than anybody here. He's, that guy is moving out there, plywood. He might be the best plywooder on of all time. Of all the crew, certainly, he is the plywooderist. So all of those are now words in the public domain, and they all belong to me, much like happy birthday belongs to somebody. It's a song, and they're making lots of money. This is my scheme, right? Uh, it's not working. You're mocking me, but uh, you'll wait. I I'm going to prevail with whack-a-mold. You see, just like the rest of them, just like I now own Arizona. I think I don't. So uh, up came this week, whack-a-mold up, came human head transplantation. Did you guys read about this? Actually, it, it originated from the same surgeon that transplanted a face. It was a successful, successful it was on one of the... Uh, uh, one of the news programs uh, that they do in the, I, I can't dateline, I would guess, but I'm not sure about that. Uh, but they had a successful face transplant. A young man blew his face off. He had a shotgun they didn't know was loaded and pulled it towards him, and it, it discharged and blew the bottom of his face off, and he was in 
very, very bad shape. And then a young man was uh, killed in an um, uh, automotive accident, I believe. I can't be sure of that. And um, they were enough similar in appearance and types of blood types that the, they were able to pull the face off of the donor, the unfortunate young man that died, and put it on the other young man, including the bone system. So it was an extraordinary um, successful operation. That surgeon declared that um, he could successfully reattach a severed human head to a donor body. And that interests me a lot. I consider that. I, I, when I see these, I'm fascinated by them, as you know. In other words, uh, he, was, he was suggesting a scenario where such as a human brain and a functioning facial structure. So I have a, a human brain that is still healthy, and a functioning facial system or structure, but it has a, it is uh, currently with a disintegrating body. And he would sever that head off. Uh, he, the temperature and the quick and the sharpness of the blades and all of this has to be um, very technically advanced. But he's going to sever it off and then he's going to attach it to an otherwise operative body whose natural head or brain has deteriorated either through disease or trauma. That was what he was saying he could do very soon. The technological capability is right on the cusp of existing. Uh, and he needed, he believed, approximately, I, I might get this slightly wrong, uh, perhaps 50 million or so, and he would be able to accomplish it. He was really looking at the military application, how he could handle uh, the uh, amputee situation. He believed we are very, very close to being able to transplant human heads one to another. Now, for those of you who attend regularly, both of you, I'm I'm I keyed. Um, You will immediately recognize the head transplant scenario as the precursor. Uh, to the brain hemisphere transplant that we covered a few weeks ago. How many of you were here when I did uh, Bernard Williams and Richard Swinburne transplanting? It's a thought experiment, taking one half of your brain, the left hemisphere, and putting it into a skull that had no hemisphere at all and uh, imagine the technological surgery that is uh, capable. Imagine that it exists and it is possible to take half of your brain and put it into a person who has no brain at all. And now the question becomes, where are you? Who is that? Did you divide yourself? That is a thought experiment uh, from Bernard Williams and and, uh, also expounded upon by uh, Richard Swinburne, uh, two men who uh, think deeply about these kinds of things. And we covered that a few weeks ago, maybe months ago. I can't even remember when we did it, but quite a while back. And if you heard that, you'll recognize immediately transplantation of head is really in front of of separating the brain. So it's the precursor. And that addresses uh, all of the questions. We addressed all the questions that come with the removal and exchanging, uh, ultimately, of today's discussion of human heads back then. So if you haven't uh, gone through that with me, uh, I recommend that you do it. It's a very, very interesting thing to contemplate. As Bill pointed out, uh, we can think deeply about stuff. That's a remarkable gift, and, and we should do so. So anyway, the questions become uh, the spatial extendedness or the location of the person. Where is the person now? 
uh, or the uh, self-identity or the self-awareness or the consciousness. Head transplantation, as you may know, and you have to be born or about 1950, so raise your, don't raise your hand if that applies to you. Good for you. Nice, nicely thought through. But head transplantation has been attempted thousands of times, and if you have been around that long, as I have, unfortunately, you know that that happened. I remember when it happened in the 70s, it was a big, big deal. And mostly it is done with dogs. I was explaining to Nick and, uh, Ruth Ann, that the dogs have emotion, they have memory, they have joy, they have frustration, they are jealous of one another, they will, uh, they, they act just like us. And that is why they pick dogs. Because they, dogs exhibit uh, human characteristics. Or we, ex- we exhibit dog characteristics. It's one of the, could go either way, can't it? Uh, I'll tell this story really fast. We came home last night, and the, and the dogs had conspired and figured out how to open the uh, 50-pound container of food. And they had uh, obviously uh, consolidated all the available information and had a plan and decided uh, how the best uh, execution would proceed, and they uh, knocked this thing over and drug it about 10 feet, got the lid off of it, and there was a big pile in the kitchen when I got home, <coughs> and two dogs were missing. One volunteered to take the hit, the youngest. And we could tell pretty soon how many of them were involved in the crime by just watching the natural uh, processes that occur afterwards and the magnitude of it. I would guess they ate 25 pounds of dog food <laughs> based on what was left. <laughs> all at once <laughs> it should have been it would have been great to watch I got to watch part of what uh, occurs as I said naturally this morning and identify immediately with scientific precision who was involved and who got what because they, uh, they hadn't anticipated the remnant anyway <clears throat> that's why they use dogs because of those characteristics and monkeys as well and the results of these severing the heads and putting one head on another body. They have, obviously, healthy animals, and they they cut the head off of one, and they cut the head off of the other. They cool the heads, and they, uh, and they try to exchange them. That's what they've been trying to do for 50 to well, 75 years, at least that I am aware of, and it's ancient. It has gone back thousands of years, this kind of thinking. And usually uh, the results of the, oh, well, the, they're not usually, the results of these experiments are heretofore predictable. Blood circulation is able to be established. So they are able to get the, the head that is transplanted to function. The monkeys um, have even been said to have attempted to bite the surgeons. Uh, the, uh, there's no nervous system functionality. This is a short-lived event. These animals, bless their hearts, don't live long doing this, as we would predict. The Chinese are the most interested, even today, and motivated. Uh, What their ambition ultimately is, they haven't revealed it, I can guess. I have a historical understanding of this process and why men have been attempting to do it for thousands of years. And so far, they have been able to take the head of a puppy and graft it onto the neck of a large dog and get the circulation system 
to function. And so they make an artificial, if you will, Siamese twin. And, and you have to think about the Siamese twin event as well. Uh, we have essentially two heads, do we not, in one body, uh, especially the most famous ones. We have two persons, the ones that cannot be separated, but we have two persons and one body um, that would tour the, the world. They were very famous. I can't remember their names, but I believe they were Chinese. Um, and so um, you think about two persons and one body for a minute. That is an interesting thing to consider. But again, once you start looking at Siamese twins and creating two-headed dogs, uh, all these questions come flying out. They explode at you. The foremost being, uh, what happens to me if I am in this experiment or in this procedure? If your head is removed from your body and placed on another's body, answer this question to yourself. Where are you now? What about the other person? Where is he? Obviously, this is a question of physical death and the continuity of the soul, the continuing of the mind. The fact that our minds survive the physical death of our body, uh, and again, let me say that, this is a, the, it's a fact that our minds survive the physical death of the body. A physical process, which is death. Uh, the, the physical death of the body cannot and does not impact a non-physical entity, which is our soul or our mind. I'm sorry, sir, do you need anything before I... Oh, oh, I got you. Okay. Sorry. I thought you were towing cars or something. I needed to be sure. My cars. <laughs> I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> okay. Anyway, uh, where do we go if the body dies does not impact the non-physical entity, our soul, our mind, our spirit, us, me, you, where do we, you, I go? What happens to us? We are our thoughts. We are not our bodies. The Bible never, 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 God never refers to us, our, our personhood, our self-identity. He never calls us a body. He always calls us a living soul, he, an immortal soul for that matter. At risk is not our immortality or our identity or our existence. At risk is our destination, our destiny. But you know all of that already. I'm repeating because of Elisha and rainbows. Because if you're going to talk about Elisha, eventually you're going to talk about rainbows. And you're also going to talk about George Berkeley and Richard Swinburne some more. As you know, if I cut off your hand, you can answer the question real quickly, where are you? You're still with your body. You've lost your hand. You don't follow the hand. There was a movie, right? Where the hand went around, how old do you have to be? What was the name of the movie? The Thing, right? It scared us. We really did. That scared us. It was probably the music, but the little hand went around and there it moved about the speed of a turtle. No one ever hit the hand with a rock. 
They just went around and no one ever ran from the hand. They just sat there until the hand strangled them. Okay. You, there was somebody that assumed that we followed the hand. We wouldn't. The hand would not be us. That's obvious. Okay. Next, I amputate the arm. I've done this. I've asked you these questions before. Again, where are you? Do you go with the arm? You don't. By the way, this is one of the do you not knows. And, and, and let me just go, uh, I don't know how much time I, I might have some time to do. I don't know when I started. <laughs> it's important that you are aware of the do you not knows, because usually you don't know. Every time I ask people, do you know the do you not knows? And they go, I don't know the do you not know. I didn't even know there were do you not knows in the Bible. Well, there are in Corinthians. Corinthians 6.2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And he implies that you don't know it. And you may think you know it, but I'll promise you, you probably don't know the totality of it. You might have a shallow under, you might know the verses in there, but you won't know when, you don't know why, you won't know who, and you don't know the purpose of it in all likelihood. Do you not know that we shall judge angels? Why are we judging angels? Which angels? The fallen angels or the unfallen angels? Or all the angels? And what are we judging them about? What happens when we judge them? Where do they go? Why do they go there? What do they become? Do they stay the same or do they change? Do you not know? Verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Which kingdom of God? How many facets to the kingdom of God do I have? I have five facets. Which facet am I talking about? Messianic? Universal. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? What's that mean? Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? Do you not know that your body is exactly designed the same as the tabernacle of Moses? You have entry points. You have a laver, you have a menorah, you have a holy of holies, you have an ark, you have a holy place. Do you not know that your body is designed exactly like the tent of Moses? You will the tabard or the temple of Solomon. That's what it means. So where is the holy of holies in your body? Exactly. Where exactly is it? And, and by the way, um, uh, you need to recognize that the death process, when the soul leaves the body, if you will, if you want to think of it as when your mind leaves the body, where does it leave from and how is that process? How does it happen chemically, physically? What is the process that causes that? What does the body do to expel out and, and uh, the soul? As you know, um, it's often described, and I think correctly so. The death process where the, where the soul or the mind is expelled is very, very similar to the birth process. Where out of a body comes life. And you'll see that constantly in scripture and referred also philosophically. But, I want you to notice, um, you need to understand the last do you not know. 
you've got to understand that you are designed exactly like the tent of Moses. Identically. Wonderful work done on that, by the way. It's real easy to find. Just type yourself in and, or type that in and, and up will pop Clarence Larkin to get you started and, and you'll uh, look at his diagrams and, and his thought processes back in the 1920s. But I just want you to recognize you, you can see that uh, I can, I can render you almost barely functioning physically and you're still there. I can, your legs, we have tragic soldiers now uh, that have come back uh, with no arms and legs. Uh, we have people that have nothing. Uh, so how much of the body can I remove before you're gone from the body? And that's why I added the gradual nature of the or the injection of time to the process. I keep taking pieces off of you uh, until uh, we decide how much uh, is left. What, what needs to remain for you to still be there? And, and the gradual nature of the thought experiment is critical here. Ask, why is the weird teacher lecture person inserting time and taking pieces in, in this event, this gradual, and he's eliminating options from, from where I can hide? And by the way, it's, it was quite common for medical students at the turn of the century, uh, 20th, 19th to 20th century. It still goes on today, by the way, but not very much. People don't like to know about it. And so it's um, kept very, very quiet. But it's quite common for medical students, this is how they trained them, to remove parts of an animal's brain. Again, mostly dogs. They would slice off pieces of the brain in an attempt to find out what happened to the mind. What, where did the mind go? They're trying to trace it, where it would run to, where, if they took it out of this space, would it go over here? That was the, that was what they were attempting to figure out. Late 19th century, uh, early 20th century, uh, um, and as you know, I think that you should, all of you, and it's not easy reading, it's Elijah D. Buckner, he was a physician, and he wrote The Immortality of Animals, and he went through this process, and it is uh, amazing what he, what he, Figured out. Not easy, but recommended. You won't like reading it. Very hard to read. But definitely worth it. This is a man who uh, was a powerful theologian by the end of his life. Yes? Yeah. Yeah, he's absolutely right about that. As you know, I believe... I wrote here, as you also also know, so I must have said... You, as you also know, somewhere back there, I believe that Sodom had rapidly advanced to a place where we have not reached yet, but we're trying. But they had gotten to a place where they were harvesting human beings to defeat physical death. That's what they were doing. It's called the blood of the children in Ezekiel 16. You read about Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and, and he says, by the way, to Israel, what you're doing is as bad, if not worse, than what they did. The blood of the children. God ended Sodom and Gomorrah, and he dispersed Israel and ended it there too. And he also ended Genesis 6. Um, God intervenes whenever, and you have to define blood of the children. What blood of the children does it mean? It's just not simply sacrificing and killing children. It's far more complicated than that. It is the attempt to defeat physical death. When it says old men surrounded that house in Sodom, those were old men. Obvious question, how old? What is an old man in those days? I promise you. They were old, but they were physically still formidable. 
How did they stay like that? Old was in reference to the length of time, not their physical condition. Anyway, obviously, if I continue removing parts, I'm going to come to a point. It's the how much of the brain can be taken. What is the point in the timeline? Where is it, if you will? When do I come to the place? At what place does disembodiment occur? Where the full mental life leaves and continues, but control of the physical device, the body, is ended. So again, what is the place, the point of that? Uh, where that, where a man or a woman finds himself or herself no longer able to operate, to voluntarily control uh, their previous physical body, and the soul is expelled. Where is that place? When does it happen? Um, and there's great debate over it. And eventually soon, uh, again, I will demonstrate that logic and natural law, subatomic diameter, makes it certain that none of the matter which is my body, none of it, or your body, none of it is essential to our personhood. Not any of it. That's easy to prove. Why don't they do it all the time in grade school? Because that's where it belongs. It does not fit current philosophy of our country. It's just, it's logical. You can look at me. It's happening while I'm talking to you. While I am talking to you, part of my body is disappearing. It's a lot faster than some of you. But it is. Our, it, our, the matter of our bodies, the, the matter of our body is, a, is always in a replacement replication process. Skin is coming off. Skin is being replaced. We're constantly regenerating. Uh, now, we also, in, in my case, it is obvious that the, uh, the replication process is uh, significantly flawed. The copying machine is not working very well anymore. And the more copies I make, the worse I get. It's coming for everybody. But that, that is the process, by the way. Immediately, Sodom and Gomorrah, they had no issues with food. They had no issues with having to work. They had no issues with any of the curse at all. The only thing that was happening to them was the Adam death, or the natu- not the Abel death. I'm sure they, that was happening there, too. The death by force. But the death by decay, they were struggling to stop. And they got it. They figured it out. Very, very wise people. God comes. says, uh-uh. The blood of the children is where I stopped you. So my body is constantly regenerating, and and de- but it, uh, I I have the mortogenic factor in me just as you do, and and the process is gradual, and we need to notice the implications of this gradual time element. And once we've done we've done that, once we've got a hold of all of that, then Wilder Penfeld comes to play with his consideration of the source of energy for the mind after physical death. That's our new discussion. Uh, and God calls himself the light. He is the energy deliverer, the broadcast power system. And so it seems obvious to me where that power comes for the mind to continue. The mind has to have power. It needs energy. By the way, as we've talked about before, the mind, if you don't force it to sleep, it'll kill the body. The mind will keep the body going until the body dies. We've had people watching soccer games that killed themselves. They would watch soccer game after soccer game after soccer game and never sleep because they wanted to see them all and they die. The mind is ridiculously more powerful than the physical body. Anyway, rainbows and Elisha. 
Got to move fast. Christopher, who is now coming. I could wait for him so that he could participate. Christopher brought up perception and reality the other day. We sit around the living room and we talk about perception and reality. And rainbows. He noted, and, and you note as well, that colorblind animals cannot perceive rainbows. Can't see them. Their eyes, the, the lens that they have, the system that they have, does not recognize the light spectrum that we humans do. Now, there are some animals that see different spectrums that we can't. But as generally, we see light spectrum that they do not. As a quick aside, the seeing operation, or the seeing operations, if you will, is a very valuable piece of understanding for you. It will lead the physics students to similarly evaluate the hearing and feeling operations. But I want you to start with the seeing operation. Know the seeing operation as best you can. Understand how it is that you see things. And what is it that you're actually seeing? What is the definition of the word seeing? What does seeing mean? And eventually, once you've got that, you just take seeing for, for granted. You think you understand seeing. I promise you again, you don't understand seeing. I need you to understand it because I need you to understand feeling and hearing. Touching, obviously, is feeling. I have degrees of feeling. I have degrees of hearing, smelling. I have that disorder where I smell things that don't exist. That's true. I have it. I run around the house looking for them. I did. Couldn't find them. I was convinced the house, something was in the house. I looked everywhere. I could find, I could walk into a room and find it. And it was gone. I go into another room. Oh, it's in this room. So I finally I decided it was in the crawl space, getting into the heating duct system and going throughout the whole house. So I'm in the crawl space. Then one day I'm driving here. It's in the car. It's me. I stink what I'm thinking. And then I come here and I'm standing at this podium and I smell it in this building. And I went, okay. My mind thinks I'm smelling something, and I am not. It has a medical term to it. I looked it up, and I know what I have. It is a condition for pre-onset Alzheimer's, or sinus infection. So now you know why I think of things that I think of now. It's been going on. How long have I been smelling weird things that don't exist here? It's been years. So it happens uh, a lot. So when I tell you that you smell funny, it could could go either way. I mean, don't don't necessarily take it personal. Mm-hmm. But I want you to understand the seeing operation first and foremost, um, and then eventually you'll work your way to the other operations. Uh, what I mean by the seeing operation is the physics of seeing, the photons of light, the absorption. Uh, by the structures of the eye, the sending of information into the brain, the chemical and the electrical impulses that we can now watch in the brain that are the result of that seeing operation. Once you get that, you're going to be forced to conclude that what we call seeing is really an interpretive procedure. And what I mean by that is is somehow reflection and refraction of light, uh, light particles and light waves striking against objects and devices. 
the, are the human eyes, for example, traveling through space, then converted to chemical and electrical uh, processes inside brain matter, somehow all of that is seen. In other words, it's interpreted, it's understood, it's given meaning, intentionality. It's converted into a recognizable picture by something inside of us and something inside of animals. I know animals are doing the same thing. I can throw a frisbee at Abigail. She can run it down, figure out where it's going and catch it. That's a mind function. How does she do that? How does that math occur in her? Seeing is an extraordinary event, and it is obvious once you begin to look at the physics of it and you break it down to the particle level, you realize that we see in our mind, I can prove that to you immediately, close your eyes and imagine uh, somebody. You can see them. and You can see them in color. You dream. Eyes are closed. You see in your mind. So that is very valuable for you to understand. Now ask yourself the obvious question. If I see in my mind, do I feel in my mind? Yeah, you're gone. That's how it works. Where is see what is seeing? Where is it? How does it work? What is it really? And then you apply that to the rest of the senses. I'm clearly I am an example of somebody that smells in his mind. Now, for today, the most obvious of the obvious questions is the George Berkeley question again. It's in a slightly different form today. If an animal cannot see a rainbow, this was Christopher's question that he had uh, spent some time chasing around the other day. If an animal cannot see a rainbow, does the rainbow exist for that animal? It exists for you. Does it exist for the animal? And that is the George Berkeley question. This question, by the way, comes from intensive testing by me, because, again, I have dogs. And I turn on the TV. I mute the TV. The dogs attack the TV. They attack the TV when there are... Abby hates skiers and bike racers. Hates them. Sees them on the TV and tries to destroy them which is problematic. The, the other dogs, uh, uh, we had a, a herd of, of bison going across. Off the couch, full blast, just tried to... They can see the TV. They know what's on it. Your dogs can too. They can certainly hear it. If a dog barks on the TV, they all bark. So There are some days where we ask ourselves, why do we have dogs? And then we realize that nobody bothers our stuff. But Abigail sees the ski racers or the bike racers as imminent threats, though they are what? They're LCD, liquid crystal diodes or light emitting diode images, assembled electronically. But she not only can figure out what they are, and by the way, if she sees them in real life, Aids in there, too. So, she can figure out what they are. She identifies them as a threat to her or to us. And she goes right into, I must defend against the evil skiers. She assigns a meaning immediately. They can watch television, but they may not see a rainbow. 
Again, if they cannot see it, if they cannot perceive it, does it still exist? Hopefully you've begun to race ahead of me here. Most people will answer, of course the rainbow exists. Why does the rainbow exist? I asked them. Well, because I can see it. I have no idea what the seeing process is, but I am convinced it exists because I see it. Just because Abigail, they will tell me, cannot see the rainbow does not render the rainbow non-existent. Here's where Scooby-Doo comes in. Rot roll. Eh, You have just fallen into the George Berkeley trap. And uh, that is, by the way, turtles all the way down. That is the fallacy of infinite regression. George Berkeley is leaping, pouncing on that answer, just like the Sabo lion is. He's right there. Because you have fallen for it, if you answer that way. Because my question becomes immediately, if Abigail does not perceive it, but you perceive it, it still exists. What happens if you don't perceive it? Does it exist? Is there something that exists that you can't perceive? There's something that exists that Abigail can't perceive? Rainbows. Is there an equivalent for human beings? Can we see all light? No, we have limits in our sight, our supposed sight. Can we feel things that we cannot see? Can we see things that we cannot feel? Hey, how we go here? If we cannot see or feel or hear or smell or taste, does it exist? The monists, the physicalists, always say, no, it must be physical to exist. But wait, I would say to them, my mind is not physical. That's how I'll I'll counter. My mind exists and it is non-physical. And the evolutionist then responds, no, dummy. They always insult me. Usually they say, no, ranting idiot. Your mind is somehow physical. We just don't know how that's so. Yet. But we have faith, and you have to have faith in us, they will tell me, that we will, they will, given enough time, be able to prove that my mind is physical. It's emergentism is what that's called. So for today, they will tell me, we declare it a fact because we know sometime in the future, I will or they will prove it to be a fact. It's not a fact now, but eventually we'll prove it. So you have to believe it. And no other position is to be tolerated. And welcome to intellectual fascism. They don't like being called intellectual fascists, but they are absolutely intolerant of any view but their view, even though they can't prove their view and they want you to believe that their view will eventually be proven. So you have to have faith to to, to believe their view. And don't you dare have a view that's in conflict with our view. And they are very angry at me for calling them intellectual fascists. When I ask them to look up intellectual, they'll like that. Look up fascists. They'll agree if they look at the definitions. Now, as you know, existence requires immortality. Anything without immortality is temporal. It is just therefore merely waiting to re- be revealed as nothing. And you know that also, right? George Berkeley would submit that perception does in fact determine reality. 
In order for something to be real, someone has to perceive it. Someone has to see it. And you're not the someone, either am I. Either is Abigail. Someone has to perceive it for it to be real. And since seeing is a mental function, it's a mind function, it's an interpretive function, then existence, ourselves, our personhood, must be first seen in the mind of someone. There has to be the first turtle. Ultimately, we are our thoughts. We are our mind. That's how I define you. You are not defined by your body. You are never defined by your body. You are never on a slab once your mind is gone. The body is on the slab. The body is in the grave, not you. I appreciate people who go to grave sites and they leave flowers and under the memorial aspect of that and the remembering, if that helps them, that's wonderful. I'd never take that away from them. Uh, but uh, no one is there. The body is there. Talking to them uh, is illogical. Thinking that they only hear within a 12-foot radius of the location of their body is illogical. It's just not the case. We are our thoughts, our mind, never our body. And we are known, therefore, uh, I'm sorry, we are known before we have a body. So, that is the incredible statement by God in Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I perceived you in my mind. I saw you in my mind. I knew you. We are known, perceived, and seen before we have a physical body. That's what he tells us. We, you, me, I, all of us. Okay? So I want you to start considering that. It's far more complex than you might first think. That's a big duck. So that, all of that, now gets us to Elisha. Rainbows and Elisha. So we go back to 2 Kings now. This time 2 Kings 6. And we've done this in the past, but we'll do it again, because it all kind of fits together today. And I'll read it uh, really fast. I'm doing pretty good. Not using the board much today, so we're going fast. Therefore, he sent horses and chariots and a great army. So Elisha is being surrounded by a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of Elisha, the servant of the man of God, arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Elisha, alas, my master, what shall we do? They're surrounded us. They're all over the place. Thousands and thousands of them. We are doomed. Elisha answers, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray that you will give him the ability to perceive things heretofore he cannot perceive. That he thinks don't exist because he can't see them. He's convinced that nothing exists but the physical. He's a physicalist. I added a little bit there. And Elisha prayed, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord 
opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, behold, jump up and down when you see behold, because we are now learning about George Berkeley's issue, perception and reality. Something must be known before it can exist in the mind of the person who knows it. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots and fire all around Elisha. So when the Syrians came down on him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, This is fascinating. Strike this people, I pray, with blindness. So I have one guy that can see things that no one else could ever see and another group that can't see anything. Who are the two groups? So, rainbows. The man said, I can't see any rainbows. Therefore, the rainbow doesn't exist. And Elisha said, Lord, let him see the rainbow. What did he get to see? He got to see the supernatural, the spiritual realm. He got to see the angelic host. Host. Does the spiritual realm exist? Can you see it? Can somebody see it? Those who are in it can see it. They know they exist and they can see you. What an advantage to be in the angelic host. You know both realms exist. Because you can see them. But why do they exist? How did they come into existence? Does God exist? You get that all the time. Ultimately, my immortality, my existence, depends on his thoughts, his perception. He must see me in his mind, in his thoughts. His thoughts are not my thoughts. That becomes really obvious when you realize what his thoughts do. His thoughts cause what? Existence. Thank God his thoughts are not like my thoughts. His thoughts cause existence. Anyway, the eyes of the serpent were opened and the existence of the angelic host was revealed. And it had and does always exist, but we can't see it. And so we first conclude that, well, I can't see, then therefore it doesn't exist. They can see us. We cannot see them. Ask why. Why did he do it that way? Used to be people could see them. Now we can't see them. Why not? Finally, our favorite word. Of the, the lecture series here. Finally, we're for today. Remember, Elisha is standing in front of 42 men that have come to kill him, right? If you haven't been here the last few weeks, that won't make a bunch of sense to you. But he is under attack. 42 men have come to kill him. They're not school children. It's the end of Second Kings. Second Kings 24. They're 42 soldiers. They've come to kill him. Just as 50 came to kill Elijah in First Kings. I got 50 coming to kill Elijah. They tried twice. The third one surrenders, right? Now I got 42 and they have come to kill Elisha. And just as they did with Elijah, they mocked Elijah before he brought fire down on them to consume them. That's God, by the way, the angel of the Lord. That's Christ himself who brought that fire. But those, that man mocked Elijah by telling him to come down. And these killers mock Elijah by telling him to go up. And they, they mock him before they're going to rush in and kill him. Exactly the same pattern as what happened with Elijah in First Kings. 
And Elisha is a picture of the God-man, the man of God, the God-man. He's a picture of Jesus Christ, creator God who had added perfect humanity. Salvation, the Messiah, is really Jesus Christ, right? That's what the name means. So Elisha is a picture of him, and he is surrounded by 42 men who have been sent to kill him. It's a kill or be killed situation. The only way he lives is if he kills them, or God does. Either Elisha will be killed or the 42 will be killed. Exactly, by the way, exactly, can't repeat this enough, exactly as it was in 1 Kings with Elijah. They have the identical scenario. And before the killing, again, is the mocking. And what is the mocking? Go up, you bald head. And he's not bald. So what is that? They are saying... We have come to kill you. Save yourself. You can't save yourself. We have come to kill you. Nothing you can do. We're going to kill you. Save yourself from us killing you. You're not going to do it. Exactly what was said to Elijah. Come down. We're going to kill you. If you don't come down, we'll come up and kill you. They're saying to Elisha, you cannot save yourself from us killing you because you are a bald head. And a bald head is a cursed sinner, an unclean leper. God will not accept you. That's why we're going to be able to kill you. You are not a man of God. You can't save yourself. You can't save anybody else. You are an unclean, sinning leper. And we're going to kill you. And we're going to prove that that's the case, that God will curse you because we're going to kill you. And that is the same as said to who? That is almost word for word said to Jesus Christ on the cross, Matthew 27, 39 through 43. And that explains why Jesus Christ responds to that. With what? They come to him and they say, save yourself because we're killing you. And you can't save yourself. And when you can't save yourself, we're going, that's going to prove you're not God. You said you were, but you're not going to, you're going to die because we're the ones that killed you. And he proves to them, by the way, on the cross that they did not kill him. And the Romans got it. We didn't kill this guy. This was one unique, weird crucifixion that we'll never see again. But Christ says to them back, when they say to him, save yourself, come down from the cross, which is identical to go up you bald head. It's absolutely the same mocking sentence. Psalm 22 is a rebuttal to go up to your bald head. What is Psalm 22.1? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is a rebuttal to save yourself. He's saying it for their sake. And they knew immediately that it was a rebuttal. Understanding why he would quote Psalm 22.1 when they would say to him, save yourself. Understanding why he quoted that, hardly anyone in the world understands why Jesus Christ said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is he talking about himself there? No. It is a rebuttal to go up, you bald head. Which is the same thing as come down, which is the same thing as save yourself. All of those are the same thing. So the question becomes... Why is Psalm 22 a rebuttal to go up your bald head? Solve that.
And you will never have a doctrinal mistake with the crucifixion of Christ again. And next week, we will do that. Unless we're fishing. Which we won't be. Because there are no fish anymore, right? They're all, they'll all be gone after today. Let's, uh, the musicians come forward, which is a doctrinal uh, prelude, I guess. Uh, and let's rise and be dismissed.